0: Alright, episode 172, Dave Tate's about to start, and we got new music for the intro and outro. Just take a second and listen to this. Ah, oh, love it. I'm so excited having new music for the show. Um, so Dave Tate, amazing interview. We get to chat about his whole journey into this industry. And most importantly, how he dealt with all of his pain. If you have not watched the Dr. John Russon documentary series on YouTube, Fixing Dave Tate, it's definitely worth a watch. Dave was pretty much messed up with two hip replacements, torn pecs, like you name it. And John took it upon himself to help Dave get out of pain. Pretty funny as they're training together, but you know, we got a little inside scoop of how Dave dealt with his pain and his whole world of powerlifting. Without further ado, here's Dave. Hello, boys and girls. Welcome back to another episode of Cut the Shit Get Fit. I'm your host, Rafael matuszewski and joining me today is a legend, Dave Tate. Say hello. Hello. <laughs> um to, to start off, I like to just throw some easy questions to get the guests uh, going. So, what do you got planned for the weekend?
1: Oh fuck! I'm <laughs> not I'm just training.
0: Awesome. So, okay. No good plans. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, another easy question. What was the last movie you watched? Oh shit!
1: <laughs> I can't. I can't remember. I mean, the last show I watched would have been. My wife and I have just finished watching season two of Atypical, which okay. is on Netflix. So, that's we binge watched that for a week or whatever it was. So, that would be that. You know, movies yeah. are too long for me.
0: No, fair enough. <laughs> I should have asked what Netflix show you're watching, but um, yeah, yeah. Like, how did you like Atypical? Because I saw the trailer and I'm like, this actually looks really good.
1: Uh, it was well, season one. We, we stumbled across that, and season two just came out. It's all right. I mean, it's just, it passes the time. It passes the time. <laughs> yeah. It's, it, it, it doesn't bore me to death, and it's, 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 it's okay. Fair enough. I'm not going to sit here and say, you got to go watch it. I mean, it's not <laughs> like a breaking bad, bad thing, right? Yeah, yeah, for anything sure. Like it's just when you run out of shit to watch, you... <laughs> you fall into you, things. Yeah, you start going down this hole <laughs> to try to find anything that you can watch.
0: Oh, fair enough Um, so maybe a better question what was your favorite Netflix show so far
1: oh god I almost need to see a list (laughs) Um, I mean right now what's coming to my mind is Ozark season one and it's only because I just watched season two not too long ago but that was was pretty fucking good that was if it's just Netflix you know what I'm saying like breaking back all that i didn't i didn't even know what breaking bad was or even sons of anarchy for that matter yeah because i don't watch tv yeah so when it hit netflix and you know that's when that's when i saw it but i wouldn't say it's a netflix show Uh you know what i'm saying because they didn't produce it
0: yeah um so to get this thing going i like to just get a small little intro from you because this is the first time you're on my show, and probably some of the people in my audience don't even know who you are, so it'd be great to just kind of get an intro from you, who you are, what you do, and how did you get in this industry in the first place? Um,
1: I've been in the industry pretty much my whole life, so I started powerlifting when I was 13, which led to, um, God, I don't want to make this too lengthy, because I'm, we're going to put a my seminar video that we're going to put up kind of goes into all this, but it led to a trajectory of strength and conditioning from that standpoint on to, you know, college getting a degree in college, all the work experience I've ever had except for maybe two jobs, has been either as a trainer or in a gym or part of the strength industry, in some form or another. And for the last 20 years, I've co-founded and run elitefts.com which is a strength and conditioning website that has educational products or educational material, not really products that are educational, and uh, gym, fitness equipment, strength equipment, anything that somebody would need to get strong. Awesome. That's a quick summary.
0: (laughs) So, like, what got you in powerlifting in the very beginning? Because, like, at 13, that's pretty young. Like, was there someone influential in your life that kind of got you into it? Like, what was the driving force behind it?
1: Um, A lot of it was just getting my ass kicked all the time when I was younger. So through grade school and everything else, I had um, a learning disability. So at the time, you know, now it would probably be who the hell knows what it is. It would probably be ASD because everything gets to be classified ASD now. But back then it was learning disabled, so LD, uh, dyslexia. I mean, every time they came out with a new diagnosis, it was me. So that was kind of my childhood upbringing was dealing with tutors and special ed and all the other kind of shit from that standpoint, which with that comes people kicking your ass and, you know, that kind of stuff. And it took me a while to be able to learn how to stand up for myself. And then once I was able to stand up for myself and then I figured uh, my dad put me into a private gym, which was a powerlifting gym at the time. Uh, my dad had his own business. So, one of his customers was the chief of police for Finley, which is where I grew up. And he was part of a small powerlifting gym, which is very small, maybe four, or 500 square foot, you know, just power racked, powerlifting. It was just powerlifting. I didn't even know what the fuck it was. So, <laughs> it was more a matter of I was getting in a lot of trouble at the time, too. So, it was kind of them speaking and my dad saying hey look can, can he come in there and train just so he's not out doing other shit and so that's kind of how it started so the first I didn't have like a lot of other people had somebody did I mean one of my uncles bought me a weight set when I was 12 I think the plastic cement stuff and I used that And I like to use it you know and it made me somewhat stronger and it helped a little bit with wrestling but it wasn't I didn't know what the fuck I was doing. I was training four or five hours a day, just doing stupid shit, doing the same stuff all the time. And I, so that was maybe six months. So that was my dad seeing, you know, maybe he likes this, you know, weight training shit and it can help him. And then it, so that was really my introduction to training was that. But once I was put into Finley Barbell Club, it was, I was kind of on a structured powerlifting program. So a lot of people that get into training stumble around for years and years and years and really don't know what the hell they're doing. I didn't have that. You know, I was just thrown in and here's what you do. Here's how you train for me. You're going to do a meet in 16 weeks. I'm like, well, what the fuck is the meet? You know, I wrestled at the time and was getting my ass kicked. I don't think I won a match. And, um, but over the course of the next six months, 12 months, I went from basically being the kid that everybody fucked with to the kid nobody wanted to fuck with. So I didn't lose another wrestling match again. And so, you know, the, the strength training changed my life, you know, from that standpoint, where you know, I was still introverted, I was still a loner, and all the other kind of stuff. But um, and I, I I had a chip on my shoulder, too, because just because I was stronger, now everybody wanted to be friends with me. And I'm like, no, wait a fucking minute. You know, just... Not that long ago, you know, you were the one spitting in my face and doing all this other shit. Now you want to fucking hang out? Fuck you. You know, you, you go do, you know, I'll, I'll do my thing. You do your thing. So that's kind of how it started. And, and then it made me better at sports. So it made me better at wrestling. It made me better at football. It made me better at all this other thing. It did make me better at school. But it made me better at all these other things because I was physically stronger. You know, my skills were okay you know, only because I worked really, really hard, but there are people that definitely have better skills than me, but they were not fucking stronger than me. So at a high school level, if you're the kid that's got, you know, I graduated high school with a 500 pound raw bench and a 700 pound squat and a 640 deadlift. So when you're the kid that's twice as strong as everybody else, it's kind of easy, you know, to to push your way, you know, around in sport as far as alignment and stuff like that. I tell you, do. I mean, I did run across with people that were very, very heavily skilled and they used my strength against me and just kicked my ass. But I was okay with that, you know, because I had respect for that because that meant they they were doing their work. So I always had a really strong work ethic since that's just how I was brought up. So it just transferred over to that and then it just became a catalyst for everything else that I wanted to do for my life, but I didn't know how it was ever gonna play out because when I, we're talking, my first meet was in 83. So while I'm saying in high school and all this other kind of stuff, you know, while I'm saying I wanna make a career, you know, this is all I wanna do the rest of my life, everybody's, you know, no, you know, you, what do you, how? Like, how, how are you gonna support yourself lifting weights or, you know, how, there weren't even really strength coaches at the time. You know, there's just a small handful, and personal trainers didn't exist. Online trainers obviously didn't exist. You know, online didn't even exist. It's just, the video that the, my media guy just put out from the seminar, it kind of touched on that a little bit, where I just figured, you know what, I'll figure it out. But, you know, I did get steered along the way, you know, where I was told, get a business degree, you know, get this degree, get this degree. You know, so it took me a while before I it kind of I always trained, I was always working in uh, the field one way or another, but educationally I kind of bounced around quite a bit until I said, fuck it, this is what I'm going to do. Who knows where it's going to end up, but who gives a shit? We'll see. And so that's kind of how it went.
0: Oh, fair enough. Like, At what point in high school did you kind of realize that, hey, I'm really good at this and there's a chance for me to compete at a really high level?
1: Um, I always competed, well, I think I did maybe one teenage meet and then entered the teenage division in one other meet, and then the guys I trained with wouldn't let me do that anymore. I had to enter the open class everywhere I went. So I knew as a teenager I was stronger than everybody else, at least in my school. You know, it's there was no internet back then, so I don't know how fucking strong somebody was, Mm -hmm. you know, in Toledo or anywhere else. But when I went and competed in the teenage state meet and basically destroyed everybody, I realized that, you know, maybe maybe I'm gonna maybe I'm good at this. And but I that didn't that really even wasn't the driving force either. I just loved to train. You know, the the meets were just. They were what they were, you know. They were never like a huge driving force for me. It was just getting in there, and training, and, and pushing myself, and then you know getting stronger. It's it's I mean, getting stronger is always fucking cool. And um, so you know that I love that, you know. And I had a small stint with bodybuilding when I was in college, and I hated that. And because the strength aspect just wasn't, it wasn't there. The work aspect was, you know, the discipline aspect was, but it just. It just didn't jive, you know, with me at all. But in high school, it was just... It was something I was really good at, something I loved to do. You know, I didn't... It was also something that very rare... Maybe one or two training partners that I had at the time were actually in high school. You know, all the other ones were, you know, cops and, you know, older, older people. So in the gym, I was... Kind of equal, you know. I wasn't the stupid fuck. I wasn't, you know, all the, you know, I wasn't the special ed kid. You know, I was just, and actually, you know, it was kind of, you know, you kind of go in the gym and you're, you know, kind of a little runt because you don't know what the fuck you're doing. And then they're showing you, you get a little bit stronger. Then all of a sudden, you know, everything's kind of even in the gym. Then you start to get stronger than some other people. Then you know, there's the bullshit that comes around with that. But it wasn't like school, you know, where I had to avoid you know and just like fucking stay away from me or you know be a loner type of thing in the gym I could be who I was you know and not have to worry about all the other bullshit
0: no fair enough at what point or maybe you didn't even do this but at what point was the first time where you like hired a coach to like help you through your career like did you do that at all
1: not until after I retired from powerlifting. Yeah. So it wasn't until then That would have been working with Justin Harris just to help me a little bit with, cause I wanted to see how lean I could get after I retired mm-hmm. just dieting wise, kind of revisiting some of the bodybuilding stuff just to see if, to see if I really wanted to do that or, you know, there was always kind of that, that thing in the back of my head, like, well, what if I would have bodybuilt instead of, doing, you know, and, and I kind of knew what the answer was, but with Justin I could validate it. Well let's train like a bodybuilder, let's diet as hard as a bodybuilder and let's just see. And then after that was over, it's like, no, fuck, I then no, I don't want to do that. You know, this, you know, I wanted to be the you know, the power lifter part, but things were different too because I always had people that helped me. So, you know, so from the very beginning when I went into the gym, they were teaching me. You know, here's here's linear periodization. Here's how you train. Here's the technical aspects of the lifts. Read this. Read this. You know, and there's piles and piles of powerlifting USA magazines in the gym. So I would be reading those over and over and over and over, and, and then asking questions to the guys I was training with, and then they would help me and. So still, while I was in high school before I graduated, I was doing a lot of meets back then. And um, I met Louie and a few a few of the meets, and he'd always answer questions and give me tips and shit like that in the warm-up room. And that's one of the things that I never forgot because, I'm just a snot-nosed kid, man. Nobody knows who I am, but these guys like, you know, Louis Simmons and John Florio, and I mean, a lot of these names aren't gonna mean shit to anybody. But at the time, they were big names in the sport. You know, even Ed Cone. You know, I, I distinctly remember one meet. It was the summer after I graduated from high school. It was a mountaineer open in West Virginia, and I just could not fucking figure the sumo deadlift out. I could pull conventional, but I was gaining weight, and my leverage, your leverage just changed when you gain weight. And my conventional just sucked, and I think that was when I was two twenty at the two two twenty at the time, and um, it's just, and I'm like, fuck, you know, that this sucks. If I pull sumo, maybe it will go better, and it did. It felt better, but I just couldn't fucking figure it out. And after the meet, Ed pulled me aside and he said, "Come here, man," and he we had one thirty five on the bar, and he showed me how to fucking sumo deadlift. Like, holy fuck, this is how you sumo deadlift. Fucking, he was a world champion at the time, you know. And I'm just out of high school. He didn't have to do that, you know. None of these guys had to do the shit that they did. And then when I got into college, it it was a little more difficult to find lifters that were better than me. But I did, which ended up being, you know, Bob Wall and George Crawford, which again were, you know, world champions or ex-world champions. And while in lighter weight divisions, you know, Bob used to piss me off because he was fucking stronger than me. He was only 148 and I was 242. I'm like, this is bullshit. And but it was a technical aspect. And that continued all the way until I graduated and the move to Columbus to train with uh, Louie at Westside Barbell. And, and I, that decision was made because Louie in one form or another was helping me in a, in a small way from the time I was a kid. So it was, you know, after I graduated, where do I want to go, you know, and there was a choice between a couple of different cities and two different gyms. And it was, it was Louie just because of that reason. So what, what the point I'm trying to get at is everything that I've ever learned in powerlifting, I was, I never paid a cent for, you know, nothing for that, which is part of the reason why I started the company that I have, you know, because it started with the Q and A because I feel I owe it to those guys You know, because they helped me. You know, so it's my responsibility now to help. You know, those that are going to come after me. Because once we stop doing that, you know, what do we come? What do we become? You know, so that's why. You know, would I have paid somebody? (sighs) To be honest, probably not, because I didn't have the fucking money. You know, so. But at the same time, I didn't have to. You know, and and just and. The other part of that is I always put myself in positions to where I was gonna be around people who were stronger. So as soon as I became amongst the strongest people wherever I was, I I had to go someplace else. I had to find other people to train with. So I had somebody to chase. You know, it's, it was just my mentality at the time because I knew it wasn't so much a strength thing. It was a mental thing. You know, you had to get around people that were lifting bigger weights than you. And it was a, um, a technique thing. You know, I learned that really young and that just simple little changes to technique can make a huge difference. So I tried to always be around people that knew how to watch a lift and make corrections to the lift. To help you get better, you know, so not a lot of rah-rah coaching type bullshit, but people that would say, look, man, you're, you you got to fucking get back on your heels more or whatever the cue was at the time and then just reinforce and build that. And that's how I ended up at West Side, cause Louis is the Westside because Louie's the best at that.
0: So with all your experience and um, looking uh-huh. at all these young girls and guys getting into powerlifting, do you see like common mistakes that you kind of look at them like, oh, fuck. Hopefully they're not going to do that for the rest of their careers. Like, do you see common mistakes all the time with young lifters?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it's weird now because the dynamic since 2010, 2012, the dynamics changed a lot where let's just make it an even decade. Let's say before 2010, anybody who power lifted competed, there were no recreational powerlifters. So I guess the best way to kinda explain this is ever since I've been a part of weight lifting or you know, whatever it is, and since eighty three, there were always people that pretended to be bodybuilders but never got on the stage and competed. So you know, closet bodybuilders, whatever we would call them at the time, you know, just recreational bodybuilders. You never had that with powerlifting. If you saw somebody in the gym and they had a gym bag, right, and they had the squat suit and a belt and they were squat benching and deadlifting, they were typically all training for a meet. It was very rare that they weren't training for a meet. So right around 2010, the sport became more popular. You know, so it could be social media, it could be the internet, whatever it's gonna be. But now you don't, the majority the vast majority, probably 90 percent, if not more, of the people in this who say they're in the sport of powerlifting w- will never compete. You know, they're they're recreational powerlifters. They have no aspirations to compete. They just want to train like a powerlifter. They just want to get strong. So, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's just it's a different dynamic when you go to help somebody, you know, with the lift because. Before, when you when I would go to help somebody, I knew that there was a long-term commitment. You know, they were going to compete competing. They were probably going to be in the sport for three to five years, maybe even more, because that seemed to be what the average was. Now, when you go to help somebody, it, they may do one meet, and then you just go on to the next thing. And that's fine, but it, it impacts how much time and effort you're really going to put in to helping somebody, you see, you see especially when you're helping them. I help people. I don't charge anything, right? So I'll look at people's videos and, stuff and critique and help as much as I can. And But if I know it's somebody that's training for a meet and they're going to compete, I'm definitely going to help a lot more than what I would if it's just some kind of recreation. You know, if it's a recreational lifter, A, I don't want to see them get hurt. You know, B, I want to make sure that their technique is very good because that's going to increase the probability of wanting to actually compete or be in the sport. C, you know, I want them to have fun, you know, so those those are the three priorities if it's a recreational thing. If it's a competitive lifter, A, I want them to get fucking healthy. B, I want them to be fucking strong. C, I don't care if it's fun because they don't care if it's fun. You know, the the, the compete, it's a different mindset. You see what I'm saying? So it's a little bit harder to navigate this the uh navigate the terrain, so to say, of helping people when when you're asking about mistakes. Mm -hmm. You know, it's 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 harder to navigate that terrain because I need to know what the what the overreaching goal is, you know, of, of who it is. So if it's if it's a novice, the biggest mistakes that they're making is that I don't think they really understand or that it's somebody who's a recreational lifter, I don't think they really understand how long it really takes to get strong because training's kind of a little bit of a mind fuck because you can go from not training at all and start weight training, however it is, and you're going to grow and you're going to get stronger and it's going to happen pretty fucking quick. So like the first three to six months, you're like, holy shit, I'm going to be a world record holder within two years. And then boom, you know, the brakes come on. And you're like, oh shit, maybe I'm not built for this, you know. And it's just, it's just how the body works, you know. And um, so it's that's the biggest difference there is, getting over that home. Now, the, if they're competitors, they've already been through this shit. You know, they, they've been through it, you know, especially somebody who's been competing for 10 years. You know, I like the people that have been competing for 10, 15 years, and i got to really dig deep to figure out how in the fuck is this person going to get stronger because in many cases they're not going to get stronger. I just have to get them healthier to be able to put the best day together that they can do. If that, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah. I, I think, like, for the newer lifters where they see that growth so fast and they're like, holy shit, like, I'm getting really good at this. And they hit that wall and then they make the big mistake of like always maxing out too often. And then they eventually hurt themselves on their deadlift and they're like, hey, what the hell is going on? And I think they like keep kind of like, you know, hitting a square peg in a round hole, just like forcing those lifts. And I'm like, no, you need to, like, recover. You need to actually have a plan, mm-hmm. and hopefully anyone that's listening, like, don't force your body to lift a weight that's way too heavy for you, because I see it all the time, like, freaking rounded backs in gyms, like, just just stop. Just stop. But
1: I, yeah, I can say in almost every case with the lifter that you're talking about, the biggest frustration, it's, I guess it's not a frustration anymore, because I'm so used to it, is they need to back off and learn how to do the lifts. Because what they, they their form, it sucks, okay? I'll just come out and say most, the, the majority of the time, their form fucking sucks. You know, it's good for a gym lifter, but for anybody that's a competitor, their form fucking sucks. And what happened is they took a shitty looking squat to a stronger shitty looking squat. And that's how they got their gains, where they have to kind of go back and reassess and learn how to do the lift correctly. And this can take, it can take time. You know, it can, I have pro lifters that I have to dial the wheel back and it takes anywhere between three and four months of just doing technical work without even putting in any type of strength component at all before the tech technique is where I want it to be. And, but usually with that, it only takes a couple three weeks strength cycles and they're way stronger than they were before they started. But it's selling them on that. You're going to have to take not one step back. You're going to have to jump off the stairs and get on another stairs. Yeah. You know, so you, I mean, you're going to have to go all the way back to the beginning and change your perception of everything. And then when they do that, you know, when the, when the technique and the form is more efficient, they, they, they need less force and effort to move the barbell through that path because it's a more efficient path. So in most cases, they're already 50 pounds stronger on each lift than what they're displaying. They just don't have the neural coordination or the central nervous system coordination, or that's the same fucking thing, but they don't have the the neural coordination or the physical coordination to be able to do that. So these these patterns need to be reestablished, kind of like learning how to walk again, but you know, walk correctly you know as a real and that's where you can tell that's where I can tell if somebody's really wanting to be a competitor or if they're not you know if they're not they're going to say fuck it I just want to get stronger and they're just going to keep doing their stuff like that's cool but understand you're only going to get so much stronger and that's fine you know because they're not going to be around within a year or two anyhow you know, the person that really wants to push the envelope and see how far they can go has a no problem. They don't like it, but they have, you know, no problem stepping back and starting from scratch.
0: Oh, fair enough. And speaking of taking a step back, I would love to kind of get you talking about your experience with uh, Dr. John Russin. And, like, first of all, like, what made you go f- seek him out? Like, why him? There's so many other, you know, Really great coaches. Like, was there something that he said or did, or what kind of sparked your interest in him?
1: Um, there's actually a good business lesson that goes with this too, as far as the reason why, because it's not as it's not as it's not as glamorous as what people think it is. John set up his gym, which is in his basement it's a big ass basement, but he set up his gym with us, you know? So we outfitted, you know, the, everything he's seen his videos, we outfitted everything for that, for his weight room. And that was last year or when, before all this started. And be, I think it was around December, he just randomly sent an email, you know, you know, thank you. Have, have a great holidays. You know, and at the time, you know, I was dealing with something that was fucked up. Which there's always something that's fucked up. And I got the email from him, and I'm like, you know, this is, this is cool. You know, I should be thanking him. So, you know, I sent an email back to him saying, you know, I appreciate it. Thank you for the, the business. And you know, by the way, we probably need to sit down and talk. You know, sometime after I get through the holiday season, and once we get through the year. And so he emailed back, and I think it was something like, I got time to talk when. Now, if you want, you know, or, or whatever. And I'm like, oh, fuck, what did I get myself into? And um so I really didn't know. I don't follow the fitness industry very much at all. Okay. I, I really don't. So I don't want to say I didn't know who he was because I did because he's, you know, what we what we call here. All customers are the VIP customers. But based upon you know, sales volume and stuff like that. He's, you know, he's a VIP customer. So it's, you know, so I I knew, I knew him because I know the, the orders that come through, you know, so I knew him because of the order history and all the other stuff. But I didn't really know him so much because of what he does in the industry or who he works with in the industry or any of that stuff. But when I really looked him up is after he sent me the email, you know, the thank you email. I'm like, I wonder who this guy really is. You know, and then I looked him up and I'm like, oh, shit, you know, he's, he's working with people that are fucked up and he's got a doctorate in physical therapy. And I've worked with physical therapists for a long time. And there's, there's good and there's bad. You know, I've had a lot of good ones. and But I, what I realized with physical therapists is they almost need to be at the doctorate level before they're able to really have a conversation and understand how a meathead thinks. All right, so you know, it's they I'm not saying you they have to be, you know, a PhD to understand that, but it takes longer to get that, you know, and plus he's been training for a long time. So, you know, I, I got a long training history, so I got a lot of injury history. So I have a lot of physical therapists that would not even work with me. It's just like, no, I can't can't handle this. You know, and then I start listing off all the, all the things and it's like, nah, nah. So, I mean, so that's kind of how that came about. So the first conversation with him was more or less me saying, here's really what you're working with and just listing everything off. And you can tell from the conversation, he's like, okay, okay, okay. This is cool. You know, we can do this. And then all of a sudden it's like, well, then there's this and it's like, uh, okay. And then there's this. And then I'm starting to get down into you know a deep dive of some of the other stuff, and it's like, oh shit, okay. Um, and I kept waiting, you know, for him to say, you know what, I think you probably need to speak to the orthopedic. You know, it's the same crap that I've gotten from almost everybody else. But he didn't. He just said, okay, here's the deal. I want to call. I want to talk to your doctors. You know, I want to talk to some of the training partners that you've trained with. I want to speak to your doctors, and then I'll get back with you. All right. And um, so from that standpoint, I'm like, okay, this guy actually has my best interest in mind here. You know, so that's where it started. So that's how it started. A simple thank you email that that he sent me. and then.
0: That, that's really cool. Like, I I got to meet John finally this uh, past weekend in Seattle because he did a seminar, and, like, he's such a down-to-earth guy, and, like, you can tell how much effort and, like, precision he puts into his craft. And when I saw the documentary series online, I'm like, holy shit, this is going to be amazing. Mm-hmm. And it just, like, showcases, like, what proper movement can do for someone who's injured. And, like, yeah. a lot of times when I get a client with whatever injury and they've been to physios and chiros and they kind of hit like a stall or a wall of getting better I'm like fuck you just need to move properly like John created such a sound program and it wasn't anything like you know something that no one's seen in the world it's just he plugged them into the right holes and you got better and that's what mm-hmm. everybody can do it's just like you got to move properly and find the right program for you and boom you feel better mm-hmm yeah, um, but I'm kind of like curious about now that you've been through that whole experience, because I know when you kind of first started the project, you were saying like out of ten on a pain scale, you were at like a seven or eight or something like that, something ridiculous, and now you're kind of at a what a three and a four. It's, um, it's probably back up,
1: but back up. you know it, it goes it goes.
0: You know I am not your typical
1: yeah you know lifter, so it's, it's going, it's going to waver, you know, so at the lowest, it probably was down to like a three, you know, a three, maybe a four. And then, you know, I'll have a flare up or something like that. Then it will shoot back to a seven or an eight. And then it's okay. Fuck. Now we got to start over, you know, again. So it's a constant process of plugging. It's going to take a while. It's going to take a lot longer than what that series demonstrated. You know, the series basically showed, you know, uh, four month training cycle, it's gonna be a while, you know, before I can sit here and say, Oh yeah, I'm pain free. Yeah. You know, I may never I may never be, you know, pain free. But, you know, to be pain free most of the time is kind of the goal, you know, and not to be in a place where you're fucked up all the time. Or, you know, more realistically is to be able to train the way that I want to be able to train. And then if something fucked up happens, like I have to get something else replaced, you know, that it doesn't take four months or whatever. It, that doesn't throw me off kilter too long, you know. So with my first hip replacement, you know, that was pretty That was pretty quick. You know, I went in in really good shape, and it didn't take that long to be able to, you know, come back out from it. The second one, it took, uh, it took a lot longer, you know, cause I went into it a little bit more beat up than what I should have. So, you know, when they do something major like that, you're, you're going back to ground zero with pretty much everything. And so the climb was a lot higher, but that climb wouldn't have been as high had I gone into it being a little bit better movement wise and strength wise in the areas that I hate to train but need to do, you know, it would have helped tremendously. And um, so that's that's the part now. I mean, the biggest thing with John at this point is probably more health focused, which I've never been really health focused in my life. I've never really given a fuck about that in any way. And I'm, I'm still not sure I, I do, you know, so I'm trying to like convince myself about that. like. So we'll see, we'll see from that standpoint, but that that's kind of where it is at this point. And yeah, I mean it's that's about it. I mean it's okay. it, it's it's phases, you know. So yeah. it's coming back down. So I had a flare up not too long ago, which was it was bad. So that kind of took everything, you know, way off par, which is almost going back to square one again. But You know, that's fine, that's what it is. So that that's the goal, you know, with working with him now is how do we continue to build on this but not end up having to go back to square one again if something flares up, you know, like it has. It's it's just I have really bad arthroarthritis So I have bone spurs pretty much everywhere. Mm -hmm. So every now and again it will just flare up like a motherfucker and I can't do shit and and then it doesn't just go away. You know, it takes time to be able to go away. And then while that's really bad, I can't really do shit, you know, training wise. So all the movement patterns that, you know, all the things that he's trying to work on to try to get it where it needs to be gets, you know, thrown right back, you know, to, to, to starting, you know, so. It's kind of easy. I mean, from a programming standpoint, because I know where the hell it needs to go. I mean, what to yeah. do, you know, from that standpoint, and um, and then go from there. So.
0: Yeah, like I'm really fascinated with pain because I think for the average person, when they are in pain, the biggest thing is the fear of getting it worse. So they almost kind of like prevent themselves to try new things or try an exercise that's actually going to help them because they don't want to fall into that category, like, this is going to make me worse. And I think for yeah. you, like, you know, if John gives you three new exercises that's going to help, you're not going to have this, you know, mental state that, oh, this might make me worse first before it's going to get better. And I think for the general population, they're always sitting in that fear and they're always kind of closing themselves off from anything new.
1: Well, I think that the first thing to realize, and it's it's different because I beat the shit out of myself for a long time. Yeah. You know, so... You know, it's it, pain is is it's, it's a it's a weird thing, right? So, and it's a, it's a weird thing to diagnose because you know they'll ask you, you know, what is your scale, what is your pain on a scale of one to ten? And my reply back is, are you talking, you know, every day? Are you talking post-surgical? Because those are two entirely different fucking scales. You know, I come out after a surgery. What is your pain? Fucking 10. You know, (laughs) then you're pumping morphine, you know, to get it, you know, to like a five or something like that. Now, you know, not post-surgical, that 10 is not the same fucking 10. You know what I'm saying? You know, so if you use that scale... That's used in hospitals and so forth. Just anybody walking around in normal everyday life is never going to be over a three, no matter how bad the pain is. You know, a three or a four. Because have you ever been coming out of surgery when the fucking nerve block wears off? You know, that that fucking hurts. You know, that that's that's a whole different level of pain. So it makes communicating pain very difficult. You know, so, and I've worked with pain management people for, since 2005, and it's really fucking hard to explain, you know, because you become more immune, you know, you can be able to handle it, you get more used to it, you know, to a lot of pain, and then is it really pain? Like, is it still there or is it not there? Just because you don't feel it a certain way that you used to feel it before. And then if there's pain meds, obviously that changes things as well, as far as, how the pain's going to feel. But if you go off the meds, well, then your tolerance, the to pain has also been changed as well. So you go off the meds and everything hurts way fucking worse for a couple of weeks because those meds were a buffer, you know? So you go off, you think, Oh shit, now it's way worse. But it's, so it's, I understand where your fascination kind of with pain comes yeah. from because I'm the same way. It's like, how do you really figure out how you define this? Because I've had people for years say, oh yeah, take this. It'll help with your pain. And I take it, I don't do a fucking thing. And so then I'm wondering, do you even hurt? Like, what what is pain to you? Like, if a fucking Advil helps with your pain, does that, you really, are you, what the fuck? Are you, are you, <laughs> you know, are you, are you even hurt at all? You know, because I wouldn't even fucking bother. Um, so that's, that's the weird thing. And that, that becomes, an area to where if somebody is working with somebody on pain management, the longer you can work with the person, the better it is because they start to learn. They don't know your pain because they're not in your body, but they, they learn your descriptions of it and to be able to learn, is it higher or lower? And they also learn your bullshit. Like is this bullshit just because he doesn't want to do a fucking split squat or is it, you know what I'm saying? So they, 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 they learn how to ask the right questions to see, you know, what's really going on.
0: Yeah. So with your experience with John, like, what are some of the things that make you feel better? Like, if you had a really bad day in pain, is there, like, a go-to thing that you do that you know it's going to kind of settle down the pain receptors?
1: The thing that helps the most out of everything that he showed me was just the post-workout. Uh, warm, cool down, or whatever you mm-hmm. want to call it, uh, just laying on the floor in you know 90-90 positions so the blood is going from my legs into you know out of the legs into the torso. Yeah. L- light stretching, you know, it just all that just getting the fuck on the floor and chilling out for 10 minutes, you know, and doing light foam rolling, which he's you know ex- made tons of videos on what 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 you should foam roll, what you shouldn't, and so forth, and light stretching and stuff like that. That has had a greater effect on my training, my recovery than probably anything I've ever done in the whole time I've ever trained. You know, so more than any intra-workout bullshit, you know, I don't want to sit and say more than anabolics and stuff like that, but it's I can, in a way, because it's not like you could add some new drug or add some new fucking painkiller, and it would have this much of an effect that that does, and um, so it's, that throws in that, that caveat of, you know, should somebody even look into those type of agents if they're not doing this first? You see what I'm saying? Because, yeah. you know, what's going to help most with recovery, that's helped more than any of the exercises or any of the other stuff by, by far.
0: Yeah. I, I look at it as like just stress management. Like the average person was like always revving their engine so high. And then now they want to go to the gym and add more stress. And really it's just like, like we said before, like take a couple steps back, like lay down, let the nervous system relax and then let's build our capacity to add in more training or whatever it is. Cause you know, everybody, I, I don't think anybody takes a minute just to like focus on breathing anymore. Like we're always yeah. go, go, go. Like work stress is ridiculous now. And then you sit in traffic and you're angry at the people in front of you. Like sometimes you just need to like take a second.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think, I think that's a big part of it. And The other thing though is people need to learn how to manage their time and manage their stress anyhow. People are getting stressed out about shit they shouldn't even be getting stressed out about. Like, getting stressed in traffic, really, that's gonna make a big fucking difference in your day. You know, and maybe it's because I'm older and I've lived through a lot of this stuff, you know, to be able to know, but it's, you know, people are getting too wound up about shit they shouldn't get wound up about that they have no control over, that, You know, they got to get a handle on that, you know, instead of using, you know, training and recovery modalities and all this other stuff to be able to help them recover from stress that's unnecessary. Does, Does that make sense? You know, because if they can control that unnecessary or realize they can't control certain things and just learn to fucking deal with it and understand that's just the way it is, then that removes probably half the stress in most people's lives that I speak to. So like they're so concerned about all this shit that they have no control over. And if they just got rid of that, the recovery would go through the roof. You know, and that's before you talk about sleeping and, you know, post-training and nutrition and all this other kind of stuff. So when the conversation shifts to things like stress, but people aren't talking about that. I really question, like, what do they really know about stress management, or, or, you know, have they ever dealt with anything really big? Because yeah. you, you build, a, a, you know. What's the best way to explain this? I've been as you know, I've had the business for twenty years, so we've been in several different legal issues. The first legal issue was stressful as fuck. And it didn't have to be, but I didn't know it didn't have to be. Now there could be two or three going on at a time and I don't even give a fuck. You know, because I can I can't control what's going on, on the other side. You know, I can only control what's going on, you know, from our standpoint, you know, on our side of the battle. And Whereas before you're focusing on it all the time, you know, people have relationship issues and they're focusing on the relationship issues 24 seven, but yeah, you can't really do shit about it unless you're with that person, you know, having a conversation about what that relationship, you see what I'm saying? Yeah. But there's a lot of, the, well, what if they do this? What if they do this? What if they do this? What if they do that? And at the end of the day, they didn't do any of those things. If you think of any time period that you've gone through, like, an immense amount of stress to where you're playing all this narrative in your head, and then you go back to how it really resolved, it wasn't one of the things that played in your head. So all that false narrative that was playing for weeks or months or whatever it was was just unnecessary stress fucking your life up.
0: No, fair enough. Um, so maybe second last question because we're coming up to an hour. Um, with your career, your business, and, like, everything you've experienced in your life, what do you want your legacy to be?
1: I don't give a fuck. I don't, I, I don't, I don't care. You know, that that's nothing right. I've never – I've never – what I care about is what – Here, here's the thing with that. Uh, have you ever been to a funeral? Mm-hmm. All right, so you go to the the wake, right? Yeah. How many people are there that really give a fuck, right? So, yeah. you go, so you got the person in the casket. You got a couple people, maybe two, three people that are really fucking devastated about it. Then you got a lot of people that are coming just to support the people that are hurt. You know, so they're going there just, you know, to support them. But they really, to be quite honest, they really don't give a fuck. You know, they're they're more worried about how how long do we need to stay here? You know, do we need to be here for a half hour? You know, what's appropriate? Should yeah. be an hour. Um, and I'm just being real about the whole thing, okay? So, <laughs> when it's all said and done, when the funeral's all over, the impact that you've had is on those people that really give a fuck, all right? And typically, that's your family, you know, and that's it. So, my legacy, I don't give a fuck. What I care about is that. You know, I have a family that support me and a family that I support that when I'm gone, I've made a difference to them. You know, outside of that, I don't give a fuck. You know, yes, I do want to be able to inspire people, motivate people, and all that other kind of stuff, but I know what matters most, and it's gonna be the people that give a fuck when you're in a casket. You know, so if, if those priorities aren't right, with those people and they're focusing on all the people that aren't even going to fucking come, right? Or don't even care or might make a fucking, you know, social media post that says, RIP, you know, so sad, you know, and, you know, kind of care for a second. If all your focus is on those people and not on the people that are going to be there, then your priorities are fucked. They're really fucked. So that's where I don't care about a legacy because if i'm out to leave this great legacy then i'm doing an extremely huge disservice to the people that love me the most
0: i love it Uh, that was one of the reasons why i was excited to interview you because like you just speak your mind because there's some people that like to put a filter on and try to be politically correct but that was some real talk i loved it (laughs) um so very last question where can people find you online? What projects do you have coming out? And anything else you want to plug on my show, you can do right now.
1: Elitefts.com. I mean, it's the, my blog that I keep on there is basically where everything goes. You know, I, I am on Instagram. I'm on Facebook. I do answer every Instagram DM, so I guess people should know that. Um, but I'm not on it as much as people think I am, so I may be on there you know, a couple of days I make three or four posts and I won't post shit for a few weeks, you know, but I'm always checking the DMs. You know, I always do it just the same way I check the emails because for, for me, the biggest benefit of social media for any type of networking or business, it's, it's, it's the DMs. You know, so I don't give a fuck about what I post. What I care about is, you know, if people send messages and I answer that, I can make a bigger difference than making some post, you know, about whatever it's going to be. So they can follow me there on the you know on Instagram and Facebook, but I may not be there, you know what I'm saying except for and Facebook, I will not answer them. I, I don't don't send me messages on Facebook. You know, just thats that's a fucking disaster. you know so as far as message, I just I quit checking those years ago. so I don't even bother with that, but the Instagram, but my blog is where I anything that's going on, I post, that's where I post it at. So if it's your podcast, I'll end up putting it in the blog. If it's somebody else's podcast, I'll end up putting it in the blog. If it's an Instagram post that I make that's a micro blog, I'll put it in my blog. So if people are following my blog, then they're going to get everything that I put out that's of any value.
0: Awesome. So thank you so much for your time. This was amazing. Mm -hmm. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right, so that's going to wrap up episode 172. Hopefully you enjoyed it. Dave was a treat. Sorry for all the F-bombs, but, you know, that's his personality. And hopefully you learned a thing or two about pain and what it takes to actually get out of it. And if you haven't watched it already, go search up Fixing Dave Tate on YouTube. It's definitely worth a watch. Feel free to reach out and... Share this podcast with your friends and family on every single social platform. And all of you have been listening to me and been adding me on Facebook like crazy. I swear to God, I've been getting at least 10 friend requests per day. So, all those people out there listening who haven't added me on Facebook just yet, go do that right now after this episode. In the show notes, there's a link. Click it add me. I'll say what's up and I'll do whatever I can to help you out on your fitness and health journey. Or we can just chat about whatever it is that you do. That's it for me until next week, you guys.